Thank you for giving us a voice, not just in this hour, not just on this day, but in general, for giving us a voice, for giving us words to speak. And thank you for giving us a desire, a heart, to go with our voice, a desire to to speak words that bring you pleasure, to say things that bring you delight. And thank you for delighting in the things that we say. So, Lord, use this time now of instruction, challenge, inspiration to, to, again, to delight in us and to enable us to delight in you. As we focus on the resurrection this morning, we ask your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this morning continues from the scripture reading that was read. Skipping a small portion, we're, we're going to pick up at John 20, verse 24. And go down through verse 29. This is God's word. It's true. It's forever true. Let's listen to it. John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin Didymus, he was not with him when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Amen. There's a lot about seeing in these verses, in the verses that were read and in the verses that I've read. Let's just review a few places. John 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw, she saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. Verse 5. And stooping to look in, Peter, or rather John, saw the linen cloths lying there. And then the next verse, Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. And verse 8, then the other disciple, which is John, also went in, and he saw and believed. Verse 12, and she, Mary, saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. I find it interesting that, that God reserved the revelation of his angels to a woman and not to the men. And then verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, not just angels, I have seen the Lord. And verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And then the text that I just read, verse 25, 
unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and so forth. And then the theme of my verse, the theme of my sermon this morning, verse 29, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. My sermon's called Seeing is Believing. Seeing is Believing. I'm not exactly sure what they were, but Thomas had his reasons for his unbelief. Using Thomas as a starting point, I'm going to discuss why many people today don't have faith in the resurrection, why they struggle, and if you have doubts, why you should believe that Jesus actually did rise in a body from the dead. There is one thing I do know, though, about Thomas. He didn't work for the New York Times. Because if he had, he would never have published a photograph on his paper's website of a missile launch in Iran, as happened last summer, that turned out to have been photoshopped by the PR team of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards. Thomas would have gotten that one. He would have seen right through that one. So much for all the news that's fit to print, right? So this raises the question in my mind, how were news stories verified in the first century anyway? How did they do their fact-checking? How did they figure out what was real? Here's what we do know about the resurrection account. The Bible records Jesus first appearing to women, and then to two men, and then to the ten disciples, and a week later he appeared to the eleven disciples, and then later to more than 500 people at one time. Not only this, but dozens of Old Testament prophecies predicted in remarkable accuracy and detail the exact events of the week leading up to his death, his death, and then his resurrection. And not just the Old Testament, but Jesus himself was on record with what would happen. And it happened just as he said. So with a photograph like this, you have to wonder if it wasn't a bodily resurrection, what in the heck was it? Here are some theories that are floating out around there, floating around about what actually might have happened if it wasn't a bodily resurrection. One of the theories is that the body was stolen. And this idea was first hatched actually the very day of his resurrection. When the leading religious authorities found out that the body was gone, they went, had a meeting, right? And then they said, here's what we'll do. We'll bribe the Roman guards and we'll, ha we'll ask them to say that his body was stolen. This edited photograph, though, doesn't meet publication standards, does it? I mean, think about it. These are Roman guards, and not just a couple. A Roman guard was 12 Roman men, men who would give up their lives if they, if they failed in their duty. And so to steal the body, you would have to have these disciples, remember, disciples who shrunk away from Jesus the previous night when he was arrested, who didn't even have the guts to show up at the, cru at the crucifixion. These disciples, these scaredy cats, were going to come in, many of them, because it would take many men to roll away this stone, get past the Roman guard, take the body, and then, after they stole the body, they were going to hide it somewhere and go boldly, preaching and proclaiming that he was risen from the dead, even to the point of losing their lives in torturous, murderous deaths. 
I don't think so. Another doctored picture possibility that's out there that I've heard about is something called the swoon theory. Swoon, as in Jesus passed out from the intense pain that he was going through. The problem with this is the Roman guards that were sent to check whether he was dead had seen a few crucified men before. They'd seen just a few. Plus, they were instructed to run him through with the spear to make sure that he was dead. And what came out of him but blood and water, a sign that he had died. Even if he wasn't dead at that point, he would have had to survive three days without food, without water, having hung on a cross for six hours in a low-oxygen, cold tomb environment. Then he would have somehow had to roll the stone away, evade the 12 guards that I just mentioned, And then pretend to have been a glorious resurrected Messiah, king, to his disciples who would have had to believe him to such a degree that they would have again thrown down their lives to the point of being tortured to death. I don't think so. Jesus didn't swoon. His body wasn't stolen. There are a couple of other interesting but even less plausible theories that I've heard about. Fake photo theories including the wrong tomb theory. You know, the woman went to the wrong tomb. It was actually an empty tomb. Well, that's not likely, because as soon as they started preaching resurrection, what would the religious authorities have done? They would have produced the right tomb, right? There's even the twin brother theory. That Jesus, had a, <laughs> Jesus had a twin brother, and the real Jesus died, but his twin brother came back to life and told the disciples this wonderful resurrection story. My guess is that these weren't the kinds of problems that Thomas had. These weren't the things that were going through his mind. But these do touch on problems that would-be believers have with the resurrection today. It strikes me, and maybe it strikes you, that a lot of energy is being put into finding a reason to not believe a bodily, supernatural resurrection. Besides what the text itself says, which is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Why is it that people are so intent on avoiding what seems to be so obviously a miracle? I think the thinking might go something like this. A physical resurrection just isn't plausible. It just doesn't make sense. Therefore, it must have happened some other way. I'm a science teacher, a former science teacher, and taken my share of courses in evolutionary biology and anthropology and all kinds of other things that, that biology teachers are supposed to take. And so I, I keep up a little bit in the science world with writings about evolution and the debates between atheists and Christians and theists and so forth that are, that are current today. And I read, a, I read an article in the New Republic published on February 4th by a biologist named Jerry Coyne. I found it interesting that, that Professor Coyne pointed out that Darwin didn't completely exclude the idea of a creator God. Listen to what Darwin wrote to one of his colleagues. Your question, what would convince me of design? If I saw an angel come down to teach us good, and I was convinced from others seeing him that I wasn't crazy, then I might believe in design. If I could be convinced thoroughly that life in mind was in an unknown way 
a function of some imponderable force, then I might believe in design. If man was made of brass or iron and in no way connected with any other creature, then I might believe in design. But this is childish writing. I think unbelieving scientists today mostly agree with Darwin. It's not that they rule out a designer completely. They just find it incredibly implausible. Coyne writes, if a 900-foot-tall Jesus appeared to the residents of New York City, as he supposedly did to Oral Roberts in Oklahoma, and there were verifiable proofs to it, I would fall down on my knees and sing loud hallelujahs. Until then, though, he's content to do his science with what Laplace called, without what Laplace called the God hypothesis. He just doesn't need it. He finds that believing in God isn't necessary for what he does. So to believers, it seems to us that they're going to great lengths to avoid believing in a creator, just like people go to great lengths to avoid believing in the resurrection. They keep trying and finding these desperate Hail Mary passes, the last-ditch attempts to avoid anything supernatural. It's an anti-supernatural bias, as I've mentioned. It's a preconception that life just can't work that way. And that should raise some red flags for a scientist. We want to avoid bringing bias into our experiments. Unfortunately, it doesn't do that. But here's what I think. I think what's at stake isn't just a scientific theory. What's at stake is a theory of all reality. What's at stake is this. If I can't see it, if I can't test it, if I wasn't there, if it doesn't fit my criteria, then I won't believe it. That's a lot of eyes. That's a lot of me's. So I think it's really about, do we find out about what's true based on what I think or based on what something else thinks? Thomas was not a Darwinian biologist, but I think he struggled with this same idea. It was about Thomas. He's dubbed Doubting Thomas because he said, unless I see the mark in his hands, unless I put my hand in the, in the gash in his side. I will never believe. Sounds like a scientist, doesn't it? I think Thomas must have been from Missouri, the show-me state. But he got his chance, didn't he? Thomas got his chance. He got a chance to do what he had said. His, his criteria were met. And I think this frustrates all the would-be sons and daughters of Thomas today. Thomas got his chance to see it. Why didn't I? Jesus says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet who believe. Thomas got to see Jesus, but Jesus says the real blessing, the real gift, is for those who believe, but unlike Thomas, do not get to see people who crave some measurement, some empirical test, some verification, they miss Jesus' blessing. You know, people demanded signs, not just in the 20th century, 
not just in the 21st century, but even in Jesus' own day, they were demanding signs. There is the show-me mindset going on all throughout Jesus' ministry, in fact. In fact, one of the themes of John's Gospel is, show me a sign. Give me a sign. What's your proof? Prove it to me. And again and again and again, Jesus says, no. Seems like Jesus is trying to make a point. Jesus is giving signs that people aren't asking for. Darwin wasn't asking for a written record of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. He wanted an angel. And the people who got angels didn't want an angel. They wanted an earthly messiah. We're constantly changing the criteria, aren't we? So no matter what the criteria that God gives us, we find something else that we want from God. It's always about my terms, my standards, my timing, and my way. I wonder if a chemist, an organic chemist, saw the parting of the Red Sea with his own eyes or her own eyes, would he or she have believed? Or would that person be like the rest of the people that saw it and disbelieved? People are constantly disbelieving the miracles of the Bible. Why is that? I think the problem is that we're not really being honest about the nature of our doubts. I won't go so far as to call them smokescreen because we struggle sincerely with doubts. But I would suggest if you struggle with these doubts, consider, is it a smokescreen? Is it an evasion of the real issue? I wonder if Coyne would really fall to his knees if a 900-foot Jesus appeared in New York City. When it comes to God, the Bible's message from cover to cover is it's about God, not me. I want to come back to this phrase, seeing is believing. I think Jesus' point when he says in our text, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe, relates to this question. Who decides what's enough proof? Who's in charge of the evidence? Is it autonomous man? And by that word, I mean autonomos. Is it man a law unto himself? human beings setting for themselves the rules of the discussion? Or is it God? Let me flip it around. Let's say for the sake of argument, it's actually, it really is about seeing as believing. And in flipping it around, I would say it's about seeing that I'm not the one who determines reality after all. Therefore, I believe seeing that all of my efforts to control my agony, my disappointment and fear have been fruitless and pointless. Therefore, I believe. Seeing that the truth is that I only believe what I can personally vouch for, and that even then I'm only believing when it suits me. Therefore, I believe. Seeing that as a creature, I need to start by listening instead of speaking. 
Therefore, I believe. Seeing is believing is true after all. It's true after all. Because Jesus says a little bit farther in, in, from the text that I read, these are written, verse 31, so that you may believe. Seeing is believing. God's word has been given to us that we would believe. And not only believing, but that we would have life, eternal life, unimpeachable, never-ending, blessed, delightful life through this resurrected Jesus. He wants us to see his word. He wants us to see his works. This isn't blind faith. This is faith with your eyes open. It's reading the text. It's seeing that he actually did rise from the dead. I was thinking about this, and it may be what's so hard is that seeing puts us in control, doesn't it? Have you ever been blindfolded and led around by someone else? Or for whatever reason, lost your sight or your glasses? I'm blind as a bat without my glasses. I'm going like this everywhere. It feels awful. You know, there's something comforting about seeing. And those of you who may not have very good eyes like me, or even worse, have some visual impairment, you know what I'm talking about. It's extremely humbling to be depending on someone else for our, our sight. I read this quote along these lines in preparation for this message. Peter Bowler gave this advice to John Wesley. Live by faith until you have faith. If you can't see, you have to trust God until he gives you sight. At the end of the day, sight is something that God has to give. It's not something that you can work up or, or work out or persuade yourself of or, or study yourself into. Faith is a gift of God. It's not just a gift of God, though. Faith is a gift of a good Father. It's a loving, heavenly Father that gives eyes to see. And it's a loving Father that is willing to give you eyes if you would ask. Does that seem so hard to ask for faith? You wouldn't believe how long, and I mean years, how many years some people wait to make that simple request of God. Give me faith. Give me sight. I want to conclude. I began asking about first century reporting techniques. I've tried to show you or to explain that no matter what century you're in, you find yourself with the same basic impulse that Thomas had, measuring truth and reality by the background of ourselves, by ourselves. As a science teacher, I always like to use, um, when we're teaching about the eye, you can, you can teach about optical illusions. Do you know what I'm talking about? There's that picture of the candle, the candlestick, which if you look at it one way, it's a candlestick. And if you look at it another way, it's two faces. Or there are those lines that look like they're curved, but because they're with a hatched background, they appear to be, or they're actually parallel. Or there, there are other tricks that you can play with your eyes, even, even tricks that cause things to disappear because of where the retina is is and the fact that there's no nerves at that sp spot on your, on your retina. 
So I was thinking about optical illusions as I was thinking about our difficulty in trusting and our insistence upon seeing. That's the, that's the weird thing about requiring certain verifiable proofs. Proofs that I agree with. It all depends on what the background is, doesn't it? A certain set of proofs with background A looks like it's shrinking or getting smaller. But you take those same proofs, put them against background B, and those proofs appear to be getting larger, don't they? So the background makes all the difference in the world. Your a priori assumptions, your, your pre-commitments, the things that you bring into the discussion, your, the things that you grew up with, your opinions. But the problem with this, and I think it's a good analogy, the problem is that believing in the resurrection is much more important than just some intellectual debate about proofs or non-proofs. It's much more than just a, an intellectual test. Believing in the resurrection makes all the difference in the world. 1 Corinthians 15.3 summarizes the Easter message by telling us that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He actually died for our sins. He was buried, Paul continues. And then, Paul writes, he was raised from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures. At the cross, Jesus was murdered and crucified in our place for our sins because we've lived lives of rejecting God. The resurrection, however, guarantees that our rejection of God is not the end of the story. That his life redeems our rejected lives. So that by believing in the resurrection, we believe in a redeemer that actually brings meaning and truth and joy and delight to human existence. That we can now actually, for the first time, be free from guilt, be free from shame, and be right with our maker. Without the resurrection, Paul says, our faith is a zero. There is no point. Close up shop and go home. But if he is raised, it's not just a victory for him. It's not just a victory for God. It's a victory for us. Paul writes in Romans 5, he was raised for our justification, which is a term that refers to being set right in the world that he was raised to make all things well, and we are made right spiritually, and then sent on a mission by God to repair the broken things in the world, to, with resurrection power, to make right the broken things in our lives, in our friends, with our families, in our communities, on this planet. Maybe the reason Thomas and people still today have a problem with the resurrection is that it is such a game changer. Maybe the issue is that it's fear. Maybe the reason my friend went for so many years before he prayed that prayer is he was afraid of the consequences. That as our meditation at the, at the beginning of our bulletin says, that the resurrection really is an earthquake. It shakes everything up. It knocks down all of the buildings. There are no survivors after the resurrection. 
except Jesus. And then Jesus himself brings to life by his standard, by his power, with his work. The, resin, the resurrection makes a claim that our problems really are that bad and that only a radical solution that is that deep can address it. So, the picture of the resurrection in the Bible, I'm convinced it's a true picture. It is not a doctored photo. This is a picture you can put on the front page of your paper. And in fact, it has been put on the front page. It's the whole point of the story. And I am, I am excited because Jesus is alive. I am, I am full of hope because Jesus is alive. And ultimately, I think, that's the one argument that can't be answered. The changed lives of believers who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And my friends, that's not just hope for non-Christians. That's hope for Christians who have forgotten or have fallen asleep or who have, who have lost sight of the very heart of their faith, that empty tomb and Jesus saying the name Mary. Just like he says her name, he speaks your name today. And he wants you to see him and to believe in him. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for, for doing this great work. Thank you for making us alive in Jesus by faith. So simple and yet so perplexing to so many smart people, not just in our generation. This is nothing new. But down through the centuries, confounding intellectuals, confounding PhDs, confounding politicians and pastors, confounding, Lord, world leaders, presidents and kings. Thank you. Thank you for, for so profoundly penetrating our world with such, a, with such a, a seismic shock as the resurrection. And indeed, there was an earthquake at that very time. Thank you, Lord, for, for changing the game so radically that it makes it, the choice for us very clear. I pray, Lord, that you would give everyone hearing me faith this morning, faith to believe that Jesus is in fact alive. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.